Hello, and welcome to the Claremont Bible Fellowship Bible Instruction Time. We now turn you over to our speaker for the day. Good morning. Um, I know um, Billy asked me to share with Tyler the scripture reading that I would want him to give. Um, didn't ask about the hymns, but that was a perfect end to our singing, um, singing all for Jesus with the passage that we're going to be looking into. Um, a few weeks ago, um, when I was sharing from up here, we looked at really the first um, 12 verses of Colossians chapter 1. Um, my study into Colossians, I, it started um, the last time I spoke at Land O'Lakes. Uh, Mr. Dunlap usually lets me know um, where they are in their regular study. On Sunday mornings, they usually go through um, a book of Scripture, and he asks me you know, if I want to continue um, in that, or I'm free to speak on what I'd like. And they were in Colossians chapter 3, so I said I would just continue with what um, the men from their fellowship were doing. I went into Colossians chapter 3, and I noticed I did not have the plethora of notes in Colossians that I had in the other epistles, in Galatians, Ephesians, and Philippians. Um, the pages of my Bible were just filled with notes in Colossians, other than early in chapter 1, not that much. Um, and it's so rich in doctrine and rich in especially explanation of who Jesus is um, that I definitely wanted to dive into it more. I did start there in chapter 3 so that I could pick up where they needed to at um, Land Lakes Bible Chapel, but then started over in Colossians chapter 1 um, to kind of get a, a bank of notes and understanding of the, of the letter. And so Tyler read those verses that we're going to be looking in, um, starting in, in verse 13. Um, speaking of the Lord Jesus, this is probably... Probably the, the greatest paragraph in explanation of the greatness and the word that is used in this paragraph that is unique, uh, unique to the entire New Testament, is that Greek word that is translated preeminence in verse 18. It's the only time that Greek word is used in the whole New Testament, and it's fitting that it is a unique word that is used to describe the uniqueness of the Lord Jesus Christ to the believers in Colossae. Um, we went over a little bit um, a few weeks ago um, when I um, introduced Colossians and started talking about those false teachers that were there that had been taking over. And the Gnostics, um, which was one part of those false teachers, they, like many false teachers even today, and um, my wife and I have been talking about this, and um, the false teachers today, they don't, they don't deny the importance of the Lord Jesus. They don't deny that Jesus is important. But they do dethrone Him. They don't deny His importance. They dethrone Him. They give him prominence. They don't give him preeminence. 
And if you're listening to a teacher, to a Bible teacher, or a pastor, or somebody's sermon from some church, and you're seeing it on TV or on social media, or, and they do not give Jesus the preeminence, they do not give Jesus the throne, that is a false, false gospel. It is a false message. Satan in the garden did not deny the importance of God. He just questioned the character of God. He, made, he took God off the throne and made God just one of many voices that one would listen to. And that's what the false teachers were doing in Colossae. The Jesus of Nazareth, Jesus Christ, was one of many, one of many emanations that, that could bring you closer to God. A God that was keeping you at arm's distance because matter itself, your body, your flesh, is evil and irredeemable. And you have to either enjoy it, enjoy the evil, or completely separate from the evil. And those were the two schools of thought going on. And Paul wanted to let them know that the Lord Jesus is greater, greater than any other voice. The Lord Jesus is greater than than your evil members. The Lord Jesus is greater than sin um, and could take care of that problem. Starting in verse 13, um, Paul gives four irrefutable arguments, at least four. There's probably many here, and you could, we could dive in and go through many rabbit trails, but to try to keep me focused, um, I'm focusing on four irrefutable arguments that Paul uses to put the Lord Jesus on the throne and keep him there. One we see in verses 13 and 14 and that is Christ is the Savior, the one and only Savior. The second one is verses 15 to 17. He is the great creator. In verse 18, we see him as the head of the church. And that, that church is all believers throughout the world. The head of the church. And in verse 19 and 20, the beloved of the Father. The preeminence of Christ in those four areas. The first one, the Savior. Verse 13 and 14. Who hath delivered us from the power of darkness and hath translated us into the kingdom of His dear Son, in whom we have redemption through His blood, even the forgiveness of sins delivered us, delivered, rescued, just in time, rescued from danger. We can't rescue ourselves. And even the Gnostics would, even, even the Gnostics would agree with that. that the, we're, they, they taught that we were evil, that our bodies are evil, all matter is evil, we can't be rescued, there's no hope. Um, and Paul is saying, He rescued us who delivered us from the power of darkness. Another thing, that, that power of darkness 
was a phrase that the Gnostics used in Colossae to kind of describe and to explain the evil that was over the world. Um, and later on in this chapter, Paul will explain how the Lord Jesus took care of all of those if they do exist, that he took care of those. The Gnostics had this idea of the evil, this evil organization of spirits that ruled the world. Um, and they were angels, archangels, principalities, powers, virtues, dominions, and thrones. Um, you know, there were, there's authors from, century, from a century ago that, that use that terminology in, in dramas about the spiritual realm and, and their imaginations. Um, that they, they borrowed that phraseology from the Gnostics and, Coloss- and Colossae. And Paul um, is saying that the Lord Jesus delivered us even from that, even any organization of evil that would be against this world, delivered us from the power of darkness. Then translated us, and that's a word that we might skip over. Um, I think Tyler, I think in his version, read transported, maybe. Um, And that's in that word. He's translated us into the kingdom of his dear son. Um, That's a deportation of a population. Deportation of a population. See, and Colossi, those in in Colossi would know that terminology. Because a few decades before, a few decades before, Antiochus the Great deported, translated, transported about 2,000 Jews from Babylonia to Colossae. And that's the phraseology, deported or translated, transferred, transported. Um, and Paul uses that word here to say, we've been translated into the kingdom of his dear son. You see, earthly kings and powers, they deport or transport defeated people. But the Lord Jesus translates the victors, transports the victors. Translated us into the kingdom, again, of His dear Son, the Son of His love, His beloved. And we'll get back to that. In whom we have redemption through His blood, even the forgiveness of sins. Redeemed. Um, redeemed. We know that word. If you've, if you've been in church on Sundays, you know that process of redemption. To release a prisoner by payment of a ransom. Um, he's forgiven us. We have forgiveness. To send away or cancel a debt. Um, delivered us, transferred us to a new kingdom. Paid our debt canceled every debt forever so we can never be enslaved again. Um, The the ransom wasn't paid to Satan. The ransom was not paid to the devil. The ransom was paid to sin and death. The ransom was paid to God himself. Satan, the accuser, can't find anything to accuse us. The files are gone. Forgiveness, forgiveness is freedom. Um, freedom 
to boldly serve Him, freedom to boldly love, freedom to boldly worship. Not an excuse for sin, not, um, not an encouragement to, for disobedience, an encouragement for obedience. Um, it's also, this, this forgiveness, this redemption is also our impetus to forgive others and to be forgiving people. Um, the Lord Jesus made that clear in Matthew 18 in his, um, the, the story that he told, the parable um, that he told of um, the forgiven servant that canceled debt. The Lord Jesus is preeminent in salvation and able to save. Um, that's what Paul is getting at here in verses 13 and 14. Completely save. Completely save. Delivered us from the power of darkness, transferred us into the kingdom. He's taking care of everything. The Lord Jesus took care of everything. Um, we think of the hymn, Jesus paid it all, and all to Him I owe. That there's no one else that I owe anything for my salvation. There's nothing I can boast of of my salvation. There's nothing anyone who appears holier than I am can, can boast Nothing that any of us can boast about regarding our salvation. It is all because of what Jesus did through His blood. The payment, the cost. He did it wholly by grace. He is preeminent in salvation. In verses 15 to 17, we see He is preeminent as the Creator. Those false teachers were very confused about creation. The all, all different kinds of, of um, explanations um, when pressed about creation. Remember, they thought all matter is evil, including the human body. Um, so, according to them, Jesus, if He was perfect, He couldn't have a human body. So, He didn't have a human body. So, then trying to explain that um, led to problems. And what it led to them to those people that, that fell into that false teaching was self-harm. Um, they would harm their own bodies to try to bring it into submission. Um, that asceticism, that just separation, um, they wouldn't fast. They would starve themselves. Um, or, or they would say, well, that teaching, that, that's just foolishness to do that. We'll just use our bodies for what they're designed for. If they're evil, let's do evil. An unabashed sinfulness. They either enslaved matter or they enjoyed it. And Paul here explains the relationship of Jesus Christ to creation. He's the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of every creature. He existed before creation is what that firstborn, and if you've heard this section taught before, you know, firstborn, and you've heard that, that, that term explained, the first place, that place of preeminence, that most important, that most important being in creation. Not that He was created. First in rank or importance. Um, it's, you look through the Psalms, and I think it's Psalm 89, um, it talks and speaking about David's line and the successor king, Solomon, calls Solomon firstborn. 
Solomon, the firstborn of David, or the firstborn. Solomon was not the firstborn of David. He had sons much older than Solomon, before Solomon, but Solomon was the line in which the kingdom would fall. That was first, and that's where he was given that place, that rank of importance as firstborn of David, even though he was not firstborn. So we know that that word firstborn, um, not a physically first, we know Jesus is prior to all creation. The image, image of the invisible God, um, an exact representation, exact representation and revelation. In Hebrews 1.3, we see the express image of his person. The Lord Jesus in John chapter 14 and verse 9, He who has seen me has seen the Father. In Jesus Christ, the invisible God is revealed perfectly. And no creature, no created creature can do that. And in this one sentence, and He is the image of the invisible God, Paul makes a direct and profound claim of the deity of the Lord Jesus. He is God. In verse 16, we see that creative power. For by Him were all things created that are in heaven and that are in earth, visible and invisible. Whether they be, and we see Paul now talking again about that spiritual realm, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, All things were created by Him and for Him. He is before all things, and by Him all things consist. Um, Since He created all things, He cannot be a created thing. You can't create all things if you were created. Um, That for... That starts off, verse 16, could be translated because. Because. Because He is first in rank. Because He is the most prominent one. Or He is the most prominent one. Because He created all things. No wonder the wind and the waves obeyed Him. No wonder disease fled from Him. John 1.3 says, similarly, all things were made by Him. And then in the second part um, of verse 16, um, that last part, it says all things exist for Him, by Him and for Him. Um, in this passage as a whole, we see that they were created by Him and for Him and in Him. And those three prepositions that Paul uses also refute another philosophy, another philosophy about creation, another philosophy about created things that existed in Colossae. Um, The ancient Greek philosophy that was used in a lot of the Eastern thought, um, it taught that all things had three causes, or had three purposes, three things about them. All things have, have a primary, an instrumental, and a final cause. The primary cause would be the original plan for the thing, what it, what it 
it naturally is supposed to do. The instrumental cause is the power that it has, the faculties that it has, the, thi- the things that make it unique. And then the final cause is that end use for it, how it ends and um, the end purpose. So plan, power, and purpose. All, all created things have this plan, power, and purpose in Greek philosophy. And Paul is saying that Jesus is those three things for everything that is created. He's the one that made the plan for it. He is the power behind any ability that it has. And it is for him that it was made. When it comes to creation, Jesus Christ planned it, produced it for his own glory. If it all exists for God in the end, if it all exists for the Lord Jesus, then nothing of itself, you can't say this is evil, that is evil, you are evil. God's creation is in bondage under the curse. It is in bondage to sin, but it can be redeemed and it can be used for the glory of God. It can be enjoyed by God's people. Um, I think in, in Paul's second letter to Timothy, he talks about those that are rich in this world. They just use what they have for the glory of God. It, what, what those things that you have that are enjoyable for the glory of God. Um, in verse 17, we see that all created things are held together by Him. By Him, all things consist or are held together. Um, and if, and I, I know I've heard it said many times, and just those discussions in those great scientific laboratories around the world that they study the atom, that they, su- that they study the smallest parts of existence, of matter, they, they dive into it, they dissect it, they get it to it, and they discover that even in the smallest particle, there is such space between the particles. There is space between that, that nucleus and the electrons. There's space between the sun and the planets. There's, what, there, there's space between these things that work in, in synchrony. And you press a physicist and you, you press the, those scientists that study things at that deep, deep, deep level. And for some time, they even would call this, this the, the glue that holds things together, the God particle. They would call it, there's some God particle, some God charge that keeps things together. They can't explain it. They couldn't. And they've come up with ways since then to explain it. But early on, when vocabulary was limited, they just said they called it the God particle. We, we, don't, we don't know what holds it all together. We don't know why electrons don't just spin off away. We don't know what is it that holds the planets in motion, in consistent orbit. It's the God particle. Because He is before all things and created all things, He can hold it together. Jesus Christ is God and only God could be before creation. This is not Satan's world. Um, I've heard um, commentators and and reading commentators on this section, um, I think it's in um, 
Warren Wearsby's book, where he talks about as a young preacher, he struggled with, it focused on sin and the fallen state of the world. He struggled with the hymn, This is My Father's World. He struggled with that, that hymn, This is My Father's World. This world is falling apart. This world, the, the prince of the power of the air. And, but Satan has no hold on anything. This is our Father's world. And then in the next verses, in verses 18 and 19, and really verse 18, Jesus Christ is the head of the church. Paul, the, the body is Paul's main illustration throughout, his, throughout the letters that he wrote. He referred to the church as a body. Um, we see it in Romans 12, 1 Corinthians 12, Ephesians 4. Anytime he talks about gifts, um, he talks about it, about being the body of Christ. Um, the body, the church is a body. The Lord Jesus is always the head. And that body is all true believers. Um, that, and that word head, and you think of, he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he might have the preeminence. That word head, um, and you know, when you look at, when you're trying to translate, when someone's trying to translate one language into another, you think of words that have all different designations, some different words that have different connotations or denotations. And um, Paul using the body, the word head, it fits well here, the head of the body. Um, It fits in the metaphor. Um, the word itself could be translated as source. He's the source of the body. He is the origin, is another word, the origin of the body. He's the leader of the body. He's the ruler of the body. It doesn't matter which word you use. It's true of the Lord Jesus um, as the source, the beginning, the originator. But no matter what word was, would be used, it would still speak and affirm the preeminence of the Lord Jesus Christ in the church. The church finds its origin and operation in Him. And he supplies us with life. He supplied us with His Spirit, with His Word. And no man could be the head of His church. That is reserved for the Lord Jesus Christ. And we know that the head of the church, or the head of the body, um, we know that the body is all believers throughout the world, but there are local bodies like this one that are important in the functioning of the, the things that, that God wants us to do in this world. Um, uh, local bodies have elders and deacons and gifted teachers, pastors, servants, but none of those can claim to be the head of even a local body of believers. Um, next, the firstborn from the dead. It's an interesting phrase, born from the dead, and born and death don't seem to go together. Um, and again, not first chronologically raised. There were others that have been raised from the dead before the Lord Jesus raised from the dead. But again, most important, the, the raising from the dead that changed human history, that changed the world. Um, without His resurrection, 
we know that there would be no resurrection from the dead for us. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul goes and explains that. Then we get to the theme of this entire section, probably the theme that Paul is going to delve into throughout this letter, and that is that in all things he might have the preeminence. Um, the, The first time that I was memorizing these verses. I think it was probably Colossians 1 was probably a, a block um, at camp when I was a varsity camper, um, you know, learning five verses at a time. And um, I had a little, a little study book, a, a um, commentary that went through all of the Pauline epistles. And, and um, it went with preeminence and with the word preeminence, it, the first thought or that the, at the front of your mind, what, had, what, had, what you had to stay focused on, the preeminence, you had to stay focused on. I thought of that particular summer, in the beginning of the summer, um, I helped my dad drive his boat um, from Homestead down to Key West, um, to the marina that we were keeping the boat in in Key West. And the compass that you use, and on a boat, that compass kind of floats and it moves a lot, you know, with, with every wave that compass moves around. But you have to keep your eye and keep focused on that heading that you're trying to stay on. If you lose focus, if you look and there's a storm out in the distance and when you're out on the water and all you see is water all around you, you can see clouds for hundreds of miles. And that storm may be a hundred miles away, but you can see it. If you lose sight of the compass, you'll look up and you'll be headed completely the wrong direction. And the preeminent thought always focused back on the Lord Jesus Christ, that in all things, no matter what circumstance we're going through, he has the first place, he has the throne. And again, it's the only time this word is used in the the Greek word that's translated preeminence is used in the New Testament. There's no other comparison to say, like, what does this word mean or anything like that? It's, it's unique here because the Lord Jesus is unique. In all things, he might have the preeminence. Um, it has similar root and phrasing as that word that's translated firstborn in this section. So it, it has some similarities to other words, but it's unique um, in its totality. Um, in... I mean, another thing from, uh, from the Wearsby commentary on Colossians, he brings up in 1893, 1893, the World's Columbian Exposition was in Chicago. And at this World's Columbian um, Exposition, they did, uh, the, they called it the World Parliament of Religions. They wanted to bring religious leaders together from all over the world to see the similarities. And there were some, some quotes that came out of that, that, that came out of that meeting, satanic, demonic ideas that came out of that meeting of um, universalism, of just concessions made by those that claimed Christ, those that claimed um, to believe in Scripture, um, some awful, awful ideas that came from that that then filtered into the church. Um, Not keeping the Lord Jesus as unique. And 
there was one preacher in Chicago at that time that wasn't having it. It was D.L. Moody. D.L. Moody decided he wasn't going to take part in this, but he was going to rent whatever space he could on the outside of it. He would rent the, the circus tents that weren't in use. He would rent theaters. He would rent any facility that was around this exposition. And he didn't attack the exposition. He didn't attack the, the, the leaders that were making concessions. He didn't attack the Hindu or the Muslim leaders that were there. No, he only preached the gospel. He preached Jesus. He preached from Colossians chapter 1 that in all things he might have the preeminence. And there were at least 2,000 professions made during, the, during those festivities that were supposed to be bringing all the world together under one religion and one idea. They're on the outside of it. The Lord Jesus was preached. Jesus and Him crucified. By Him all things consist. And thousands were saved. Then in verse 19 and 20, He's the Beloved of the Father. And this is... This is the, the, in today's world, they would say this is the mic drop for Paul when it comes to the Gnostics. This is the, the death blow to their thinking of who Jesus was. He uses their language against them. He uses their vernacular, their technical terms that they would use to confuse the believers. He uses it against them. He says, For it pleased the Father that in Him should all fullness dwell. All fullness dwells. Um, that word fullness was one of their technical terms. It's, um, in Greek, it's pleroma. Pleroma. It was their jargon. It meant the sum total, that fullness, was the sum total of all divine power and attributes that only was reserved for God the Father. That was only reserved for God Himself. The word fullness, and that word Paul uses eight times in Colossians. And, and he says all fullness, all fullness, even more than what you think fullness is, the Lord Jesus has all fullness in Him. It dwells in Him. And that word dwell was just as important as the word fullness. That word dwell means at home permanently, at home permanently, not just given for a time, not just it, it was with him during those three years of ministry, or it was with him once he realized who he was, or it, it, it's at home in him permanently, forever, eternity past to eternity present. Um, in it, it's a much older, from a commentary from the 70s, um, Dr. Kenneth, um, it looks like West, but it has a U in front of it. Weist. Weist. Um, in his um, commentary, it says about this, that the fullness dwelling in Jesus says not something that was added to his being that was not natural to him already, but that it was part of his essential being as part of his very constitution. 
and that constitution permanent. It permanently. And that's in, it was a commentary on Ephesians and Colossians um, using the Greek New Testament. Um, God the Father would not give His fullness, His pleroma to some or any created being. It, it wouldn't be given to a created being. Jesus Christ is God. What He could do, no man could do. And what could He do? In verse 20, having made peace through the blood of His cross, by Him to reconcile all things unto Himself, by Him I say, whether they be things in earth or things in heaven, to reconcile all things unto Himself. Because Jesus Christ is God, He can do what no man could do, and that is reconcile me and you. Reconcile lost sinners at war with God and reconcile them to a holy God. How can a holy God be reconciled to lost sinners? Be reconciled to those at at war with Him. Does God lower His standards? Does God ignore sin? Does He compromise with man? No. Can can man change his ways to please God? We know we can't. By nature and by practice, we're separated from the holy God. Ephesians 2.1, dead in our trespasses and sin. Romans 8.8, in flesh, man cannot please God. Reconciliation must be initiated and completed by God Himself. 2 Corinthians 5.19 says, God in Christ reconciled the world. He didn't do it at incarnation, but we celebrate that greatly in December each year. Um, He didn't reconcile in teaching or in instruction or in or in healing diseases, that wasn't where reconciliation occurred. Reconciliation occurred in death. He made peace through the blood of His cross. This reconciliation is complete. It's by Him to reconcile all things unto Himself. And this isn't, it's not um, universalism where everybody is saved and everybody is on their way to heaven. But Paul definitely taught that sinners need to trust in Jesus Christ for salvation, and that is the message of Scripture. But what he's saying here is that the Lord Jesus solved the sin problem once and for all, for all of eternity. It is dealt with and it is done for any and all who would receive it. And we know that at the name of Jesus, one day every knee shall bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father, fully God and fully man in human flesh. He died to meet the law's demands and fulfill them in victory. So these four things, these four things, irrefutable, the Lord Jesus deserves the preeminence and should have the preeminent place in our lives, in our hearts, should sit on the throne. He is taking care of all things. 
uh, all things created by him and for him. He was before all things. Still today, he's holding it all together. He reconciled all things through the cross. We have all of God's fullness. All of the divine power and attributes in the Lord Jesus. In 2 Peter chapter 1, we have um, all of the divine power. There's no adding. We're complete in Him. It's Colossians 2.10. Paul gets there. And adding doesn't give us more. If we try to add to, to it, to Him, we don't have more. We just have less of Him. We don't want to exchange preeminence for mere prominence and dethrone Jesus. And God is pleased with His Son, Jesus Christ. The Father gave Him that preeminence. The Son gives honor to the Father. Um, I heard a, a debate where someone challenged um, a preacher on the e- eternal Son of God. He says, no, you can't be an eternal Son because a father is always older than his son. So there cannot be an eternal Son. Um, and the preacher said, the thing that makes the person a father is having a son. And so if you have an eternal father, you have to have an eternal son. You can't be God the Father without a son. Jesus is the Savior of sinners, the only Savior of sinners, creator of the universe, head of the church, the beloved of the Father. He is eternal God Himself. And in my life, in your life, in our life, um, have we, have we put Him in the place of preeminence where he deserves to be. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we thank you for um, your word that we can dive into and we can see many of the, many of the, the ideas that have filtered into, into our world throughout the centuries. They're not new like your word says in Ecclesiastes. There's nothing new under the sun. These false teachings that we come up against today that would seek to put men in the place of the Lord Jesus, that would seek to lift up men to a place of a throne. It's not new and it's been happening since the first century. It's been happening since before the coming of the Lord Jesus, um, the incarnation of the Lord Jesus. Um, Lord, we pray that we we would recognize it, that false teaching when it comes, that we would be diligent Um, to keep the Lord Jesus on the throne in our hearts. Um, Lord, we thank you for these proofs that the Lord Jesus is the very Son of God, um, Creator, Redeemer, and the Beloved of God the Father. Lord, we thank you. We thank you for your word. Um, We pray as your word goes out throughout the world today um, that many would be encouraged and um, that as your gospel goes out, um, that many would be added to the kingdom today. And we thank you um, for our freedom to come in this way and look into your word. And we ask that um, you would um, help it to to move us in our lives um, throughout the week. And we pray now you would take us back to our homes in safety. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.